There's a conservative economics, Nick? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, there is. What we casually call conservative in America today is, is for the most part not conservative at all. It's libertarian. And what I mean by that is it places really almost absolute priority on free market, on free trade, on, on everything that has the word free in it, to the exclusion of a lot of other things that are really important to human flourishing and, right. and a prosperous nation. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. Well, Goldie, today uh, we get to talk to an incredibly interesting person, Oren Cass, who's the executive director of American Compass. He's trying to figure out how to reinvent conservative economics. There's a conservative economics, Nick? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there, yes, there is. And Oren is a brilliant guy. Uh, he was a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute uh, for a while. Not our favorite organization. No. Uh, but he was a domestic policy director for Mitt Romney's 2012 presidential campaign. He's a very thoughtful guy working on trying to find a new way for conservatives to think about economics and economic policy in a constructive way that is free from all of that uh, neo-libertarian garbage. Yeah, exactly. So with that, let's, let's get to talking to Warren. My name is Oren Cass. I'm the executive director at American Compass, and you can read all about us at americancompass.org. We are um, incredibly uh, excited to get to talk to you uh, this morning, Oren, because you are among the few people, not just on the right, but in the country, prepared to uh, challenge the neoliberal and neoclassical economic orthodoxy. And we've been following your work really closely and are incredibly enthused by it. So uh, we'd love to just sort of start our conversation about conservative economics by asking, you know, just for you to take us through what it was, what it is today, and where it must go in order to work for Americans. Sure. I think the the important starting place is to recognize that what we casually call conservative uh, in America today is is for the most part not conservative at all. It's it's libertarian. Uh, and and what I mean by that is it places really almost absolute priority on, uh, on, on free market, on freedom, on free trade, on, on everything that has the word free in it, um, to the exclusion of a lot of other things that are just really important to human flourishing and, right. and a prosperous nation. And so, you know, certainly conservatives care uh, a great deal about Freedom as well. I, I love free markets. I think free markets are the are the correct way to organize uh, a, a private sector and and have a prosperous economy and 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 deliver innovation and rising living standards and all those things. But conservatives, I think, historically have had a much richer conception of both things besides free markets that matter, 
and then also all the things that go into an effective free market, that having markets that work well, having a successful system of market capitalism isn't simply a matter of getting everything else out of the way. It's actually hugely dependent on uh, healthy institutions, it, you know, obviously dependent on strong families and communities. It's dependent on the sets of rules that are, are set up within the, which the market operates and that are going to channel competition in productive directions. It's dependent on the kinds of investments we make in education and infrastructure. I would argue it's heavily dependent on having a system of labor that ensures that workers are well represented and, and can look out for their interests. And so I think conservatives would, would say those things are all important to the free market. And then in turn, that it's not just about the free market, that uh, the, the free market is, is a wonderful thing, but, but we don't serve it. It serves us. And what we expect it to do for us is to in turn support those families and communities and the prosperity of the nation. And if it's not doing that, then, then the answer, which I tend to sense I get from libertarians of, well, that, that's just it. That's what the free market does has to be, no, we, we, we need to, to find ways to change that and channel it to, to be supporting the kind of ultimately sustainable uh, society and, and nation that, that we value. And so that's what I think conservatives would say that, that they haven't been saying for, for decades now, while really libertarians within the right of center coalition have, have been allowed to dictate the, the direction of economic policy. Can you think of a time and I'm, I'm not asking a rhetorical question. I really do want to know, can you think of a time when truly conservative economics was ascendant? Well, I think it's actually much more in the American tradition. I mean, yeah. Alexander Hamilton has become <laughs> popular now for other reasons, but but for the true political economy wonks out there, yeah, uh, you know, Alexander Hamilton w was was the founder who envisioned a national economic system, who... Uh, you know, obviously we have a rap about the National Bank now. I, I wish we had a rap about his report on manufacturers, uh, recognizing that if you were going to build a, a strong national economy, you were going to need some public policy to, to buttress and advance uh, healthy domestic industry. And, and, and from there, for essentially 100 years, uh, that was what America did. I mean, Henry Clay... Uh, was was famous for expounding what what he called the American system, which meant a an economic model with again a strong national economic policy focused on uh, what they called internal improvements. We would call infrastructure now and, yeah. and a national bank and uh, and and strong protectionism. And it's funny that in in part the reason it was called the American system was was to contrast it with the British economists who uh, you know Adam Smith and and so forth who were were seen as being much more supportive of, of free trade in part, at least from the American view, because that was good for Britain. You know, yes. Britain, Britain is the industrial superpower <laughs> yeah. was telling America, yeah. Hey guys, you know what free you trade. need is to yeah. just buy, buy all our British stuff. And, <laughs> uh, and, and it was the Americans were saying, well, that's fine for you, but let's talk about what America needs. Uh, and, and that goes right up, you know, Lincoln was, was a, an, an avowed follower of clay and, and advocated for the same things. Uh, and, and then really, from the Civil War, essentially all the way up through World War II, depending on how you measure it, America probably had the most protected domestic market in the world. 
and you can then talk about other policies as well, the, the approach to the Homestead Act, uh, land-grant colleges, in part because of, of the way America was, was weaving itself together as a nation, there was a sense that, that these were all going to be priorities. But the, the kind of free market fundamentalism that we now hear from time to time is, is sort of the American way, uh, has, has only been the American way since, since, since roughly the seventies. Yeah. And, and, and I think it is, you know, I, I want to emphasize, I, I mentioned earlier, you know, I love free markets too. I, I would also be the first to say, you know, I, I think given where we were in the seventies, many of the things that someone like a Reagan was advocating for were, were needed correctives. Given the challenges we faced at that time, there there was a lot of important work to be done. You know, marginal tax rates in in the seventies or what have you are probably not wise. Industries that that are overly regulated do need deregulation. I'm always fascinated by just the the fact that you had to tell the government that cost benefit analysis was a good idea because because it literally didn't exist before then. And and so it's not to say, well, you know, if only if only we just stuck with what we were doing in the '70s, all would be good. That's that's not the lesson at all. Yes. But that approach that was so prevalent on the right of center, beginning in the '70s and '80s, has not been updated since. And and what was at that time a an innovative reform agenda has has become this just sort of dogmatic fundamentalism that that is not responsive, I think, to to the nature of the challenges we actually have today. So, Oren, the problem with this podcast is you sound too much like us. Uh, uh, so uh, I was really taken by your criticism and analysis of Danny Roderick's um, sort of beyond neoliberalism set of ideas. A bunch of very smart economists of the left have acknowledged that a lot of the stuff that they used to think was not true and they are and have acknowledged that some of the problems in the world are a consequence of that bad thinking and are scrambling to try to make amends and have identified the market fundamentalism that we have just been talking about as the enemy and are proposing this new thing on the left to supersede it. If you wouldn't mind, can you try to characterize the argument that they made and that you made? Because I think it's really it's really consequential. Yeah, I think it's it's a theme that, that comes up a, a lot in the work that we do at, at American Compass, which was to get the question, well, why aren't is why isn't what you're saying just what the left wants? And <laughs> my response is, is typically, well, why <laughs> go go read a little bit more carefully what the left wants? Because, you know, I, I think there are some ways in which there are things that that I would say, yeah, people on the left of center have been making a point that's that's really important and correct about the ways that workers have been losing out and, and don't have sufficient market power and so forth. And as, as you just said, there, there are folks on the, on the left of center who are making similar critiques of the kind of general economic orthodoxy. In my experience, the problem with, with where the left has gone with this is that it, it seems to be sort of sh then shoehorning uh, the entire discipline of, of economics into a somewhat pre-existing left of center agenda. That is, if if one were to sort of step back and just ask, well, you know, what is the exact set of things that Barack Obama stood for? Okay, economists go and develop a rationale for that. It would it would sound an awful lot like what what some economists are kind of presenting as a 
kind of good faith bottom up re- reconstruction of economics. Yeah, and 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 again, I I don't present that. It's always important for me, I, I think, to emphasize. I, I don't present that as as an ad hominem attack on on Barack Obama. There, if if Barack Obama had a, a a good idea, that's that's fine. And 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 an economist is not suspect because he is proposing something that that Obama would have agreed with. But th- there is a sort of just so story component to it where everything that the left of center would like anyway magically turns out to be what this new economics is supposed to point toward in frankly some some ways that I think are hard to take seriously. And so, you know, immigration is one of these, college, you know, free college is one of these. We we can dive into to, to examples if if it's yeah. helpful. I'd love an example on uh reempowering labor cuz uh, you talk about power uh, a lot in what you write and I I'd, I'd love to hear the conservative argument for it. Goldie, with all due respect, before we do that, because I think we're aligned there, I, I, I want to hear where we're not aligned. I, I think you're making a very good point about where this beyond neoliberalism thing goes. Give us at least one example in that way. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you one example I suspect you'll agree with, and, and then maybe one that you might have some hesitation about. So so one I think there's actually widespread agreement on when when you kind of dig into it is is just on on our policymakers obsession with college. Yes. Uh and and the idea that you know essentially the best way to solve all our problems is if we could just transform send everybody, everybody to college. Right. Yeah. And, and right if, if if we could just turn everybody into what the economy wants yes. then we wouldn't have to rethink anything else. Now utter nonsense. As, well, as a preliminary matter, it's worth noting that that's not even what the economy wants right wants. now. Yeah. I mean, the, the trend in the labor market is not actually, yeah. and, and you know, the, the share of college graduates who can't even find a job right. that, that requires their degree is, is approaching half. Yeah. But then stepping back from that, our, our capacity to actually push more people, we've shown we can get more people into college, but our capacity to actually create more college graduates just isn't that great. And what we lose when we do that is... Essentially, the major—I mean, the majority of people still don't earn even a, a community college degree in this country. And so, if you asked me, you know, we have 160 billion dollars a year to spend. How much of that should we be spending on the 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 kids who are in college and presumably on the kind of economic winners track? And how many should we spend on kids who are not completing college? I would say like uh, probably about 150 billion. On on the non college yeah. kids and, and maybe ten billion on on the college and and it's exactly the reverse. I right. mean, we say we have we throw thousands, yeah. tens of thousands of dollars at, at right. students when they get their high school diploma if they're going to college, and if they're not, we say, well, okay, sorry, we don't have anything for you, and and that's absurd. And so rather than lean in further to free college and and for I think even more absurdly forgiving student debt particularly in the absence of, of, of any underlying reforms to how the, how the system's working, um, what we should be leaning into is exactly the opposite and saying, well, wait a minute, college makes sense for some people, but really what we need to be building is other pathways to a, a good career and, and a successful life. And that means less support for the college pathway. And it means admitting that, well, we're just going to get everyone a college degree isn't actually a solution. Yeah. I'm in violent agreement with you myself, uh, but the problem isn't isn't the education system or how we treat education. The problem is the economic system, which has effectively impoverished everyone except the top 10% of college graduates. That's the problem. Because if 
somebody could go to high school, get a high school degree and go to work for Starbucks and earn a wage equal to leading a secure and dignified life and raising a family, the problem is solved, right? Now all of the incentive to borrow $200,000 to go to college for no reason disappears. And I think that that's, that's the problem. I, I think you're right about the kind of how unequal the two pathways look is exactly the problem. I think it is a little bit unfair to ask the economic system to deliver comparable or, or at least sufficient outcomes for both people who are going through this $200,000 higher ed process and people who are doing essentially nothing. That is, uh, part of what we're missing, I think, is is we've converted our high schools basically into college prep academies. So <laughs> we almost make sure you don't learn too much useful in, in high school besides how to pass tests to get into college. Yeah, that's a fair um, point. That's a and, fair point. And, and, and then we say, oops, and look at that. If, yeah. if you just have high school, you can't do anything. The, the reality is that if we were using those high school years for folks who weren't headed to college, and, and even more so if we then had programs you know, at, at the end of high school and, and a year or two afterward that actually subsidized and supported um, employer-led training, then I think you're really getting somewhere. And, and so that's why I emphasize it. Yes, we're part of this is going to have to be an economy that creates more good jobs for people without college degrees. Um, but there's also a dimension of this where we could be doing, We I believe we should feel a public obligation and, and get leverage out of human capital investment but we right. should be doing it very differently than we do right now. Yeah, I agree. So one of the critiques I think that you make of the sort of beyond neoliberalism camp is this this overemphasis on market failures. And in fact, we 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 call that school of thought market failureism, <laughs> right? Which is the idea. But by the way, market failureism is a much 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 better school of thought than market fundamentalism, in my opinion. I mean, if I had to pick between the two. <laughs> I know, I know which one I prefer vastly, uh, but I do think that your criticism aligns with our view that if all of the interesting bits in economics are failures, then maybe you have a system of thought which is inadequate to the task. This is the core problem, is that what left economists want to do is take the same crappy fundamental assumptions about human behavior, what prosperity is, the dynamics of markets, et cetera, et cetera, and somehow squeeze a different outcome out of those priors. And it just can't work sustainably. It just makes no sense. Yeah, it's funny. I would What you call market failureism, I would have just called neoliber neoliberalism. But everyone says you can't define neoliberalism. So maybe market failureism captures it better. I, I think the, <laughs> the, 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 the one other thing that I think is helpful to say about that is that the in my mind, the, the biggest problem with market failureism is that it assumes that whatever we're talking about is something that markets should do or could do. Yeah. Whereas I, I think, and, and, and that inherently then kind of centers all of the discussions on markets as the organizing principle, when I think it's a lot more constructive to say, look, there are some things markets are good at. Markets allocate scarce resources well to to, who, to whoever has the resources to pay the most for them. And that, that's a useful thing. We, we, we need that in our society, and it, it drives a lot of productive behavior. But then you could start making the list of things that markets just conceptually, you would never say like, hey, you know how we should do that is with a market. 
And and whether yeah. you're talking about you know issues related to sort of geographically spread prosperity and and communities that are able to to thrive or anything related to families, frankly, a lot of things related to education. Um, and and then even when you get into things like investment, like when you're talking about how do we make sure resources are flowing toward those areas that are going to yield the the long run payoffs for society, like. Sorry, that's just not that's not something markets are equipped to do Correct. because the incentives don't work that way. And so to start describing all those things as market failures and try to correct them, as you said, kind of trusts economics to to solve things that it's not going to solve in in the framework that we use that that economists use today. But more importantly, it just it's it starts from the point that everything is supposed to be a market, whereas I right. think we need to say, Markets have their place, and then there are also a lot of places that markets really are not going to to be the mechanism we need. Right. So let's let's jump to Goldie's question about labor and its place. And yeah. and, and the reason why I raise this is that is that we struggle. Uh, we believe that the kind of economic narrative that we're developing is actually nonpartisan. It's not really left or right, even though many of the policy prescriptions we come up with, most people would categorize as being more on the left. But not being conservatives, we struggle with making the conservative argument on some of these issues. And I think labor is a good one because you've talked a lot about power in your writing. What would be a conservative argument for re-empowering labor? Well, to, to appeal to conservatives, I think it, you know the, a really important starting point is to distinguish labor as a concept from labor as it operates in America today. I mean, today's labor unions are an arm of the Democratic Party. Their primary function at this point, I would argue, is not even doing the kind of organizing and bargaining behaviors we think of. It is raising money to spend on elections for Democrats. And we could discuss whether that is even in the interests of, of the people they purport to represent, but it is certainly not something that Republicans are going to sign up for. And so I think, and, and there's interesting history of, of how we got to that place, but it's it's important to sort of step back from that and say, we're not talking about big labor as it exists today. We're not talking about what we are told in this country are pro-labor policies, which are effectively just laws to get more people into these unions. We're talking about the concept of labor. We're talking about the idea that workers should have a mechanism to organize collectively come to each other's mutual aid, provide benefits and services to each other, uh, and then exert collective power in the labor market. And in those abstract terms, that is something that, that I at least believe conservatives should be extremely enthusiastic about. In fact, I would argue it is a sort of fundamentally conservative rather than progressive concept. And you know, the, the three dimensions that, that I always try to highlight one is just it is superior in terms of economic outcomes. And, and this goes back to something we were talking about right at the beginning, which is the idea that conservatives should recognize that well-functioning markets require healthy institutions. And, and a vital institution to a well-functioning capitalist system would be mechanisms that place labor on equal footing with management so that workers are able to advance their interests in the marketplace. That's how you get markets that work well. And so we should want our economy to be one in which uh, workers have substantial, and I would say relatively equal, power vis-a-vis -vis 
their employers. Uh, and one thing that that's going to do is it's going to mean better economic outcomes for them. So that instead of having to debate redistribution after the fact and have this model of atomized individuals and a big government that takes money and moves it around, you actually have institutions and, and groups in civil society that are working to make sure that prosperity is is flowing nationwide and, and to all different segments of the economy. So, so that strikes me as a fundamentally conservative vision of how to make the economy work well. The second component is, is just from a regulatory one. The alternative to unions representing workers and bargaining with employers is Washington making the rules. And, you know, I think there's an unfortunate way in which Washington deciding to make rules and, and the labor movement asking them to has crowded out things that, that unions might otherwise do. But certainly from, from what conservatives would advocate for, I think it would be really important and valuable to say, we want workers to have effective representation and a say on governance in the workplace so that they can actually work things out. <laughs> that, that the affected parties can agree to things and we don't have to worry that one side is taking advantage of the other and we don't need a rule from Washington that's just going to cover everybody. That, again, I think is the sort of fundamentally conservative, bottom-up, tailored approach to regulating the workplace as opposed to the one we're going to have in the absence of, of labor, which is just government regulation. And then third is is just the, the role as an institution in the community. I think conservatives uniquely, or, or at least more so, realize the importance of mediating institutions in our society and the value that comes from having a voice in the local community, having mechanisms to actually accomplish things. And, you know, at the end of the day, having someone to, to sponsor the local little league team or, you know, you, you name, name your function of civil society. And labor has historically been one of those things, if not the primary thing for working households. And if you don't have that, it's not clear what would replace it. And Well, <laughs> so far, it's clear nothing replaces it. And so, you know, as conservatives, I think, rightly tear their hair out over what has happened to social capital in civil society and, and the health of a lot of especially working class communities, I think they rightly say, look, there's only so much government can do. A lot of these are cultural issues. But then you have this huge red flashing light on, on, on the control panel of things government can do. And, and it seems to me that, that conservatives should be eager to, to pull that lever and, and try to find a way to, to resuscitate the labor movement as, as an institution. So one of the great problems here uh, with reforming economics is, and I just want to acknowledge that Democrats have been party to this as well, that neoliberal economics, both the theoretical framework the and the policy framework and the narratives, really are not much more than a protection racket for the rich. Right. Like the phrase raising wages kills jobs, the idea of marginal productivity, that people are paid their marginal product, the Lucas critique of government intervention, that it always creates harm or the Orkin's trade off. Right. That there's always an inverse relationship between incre increasing amounts of justice in the world and economic efficiency. The tax cuts create growth, that regulation kills productivity. All of these things, all of these ideas are simply an internally coherent narrative designed to make rich people richer. And 
everyone else poorer, which is the story of the American economy since 1975. I mean, the great problem is that the people who currently benefit from this arrangement are not going to be talked out of it with facts. Like the Chamber of Commerce is never going to stop saying raising wages kills jobs because they don't say it because it's true. They say it because it's the most effective thing they have ever devised to keep wages low and profits high. So how do we prevail? How do you talk people out of these ideas that really are just a way to sort of protect the power of the status quo of, you know, the status quo and the power of entrenched elites? Well, I would I would challenge the premise of the question a little bit. Actually, I would challenge the premise of the question a lot, to be more blunt. I, I think you were right about some of the effects of the perspective. I think you're wrong to to describe it as as sort of a, a protection racket or or view it as kind of explicitly designed to enrich a few people and and impoverish everybody else. And that's in two ways. I think one, you know, going back to something we were talking about earlier, a lot of these ideas originated from a good place and and still have relevance. I mean, th there were times when we needed to hear that message in a sense, and where economic reforms in that direction, I think, ultimately were, were to the benefit of the country. So I, I think it's important not to kind of describe them as kind of entirely you know, without merit in all their forms and, and never helpful. And I also think, at least in my experience, most of the folks who hold these views hold them quite genuinely. Um, you know, the, the Chamber of Commerce is a, a lobbying group, I believe. They are yeah. they are literally paid to just take positions that Correct. benefit people. To benefit the executives and the shareholders of the right. corporations, yes, they are right. But Correct. but if, if, if <laughs> but if, but right, but 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 that's very different than if if you look in at, for instance, the think tank community, or you look at politicians themselves. You know, of course, everyone is is self interested in in various ways, as are all of us on this podcast. But they also, generally speaking, think they're doing the right thing. And and I think the problem is that they, they are taking these ideas that had real important purchase at one time and just kind of blindly extending them rather than critically scrutinizing and and, and testing and, and adapting them over time. And so to your question of kind of what do you what do you do about it? One question it comes down to is sort of to what extent do ideas matter and and persuasion can work versus to what extent is it is it purely a question of of self-interest? And and on the first part, you know, in my experience at least, I, I think persuasion does play an important role. Within the right of center, I think that you have started to see some movement. I, I think there is some rethinking going on. I mean, we we put out this statement from American Compass on conservatives needing to rethink labor and and we're able to get everybody from you know a, a sitting US senator to a former attorney general to leaders at a, a bunch of different think tanks to some of the most prominent management side labor lawyers to to sign on and say yes this is you know we we don't necessarily agree on specific proposal x at this stage but this is something that needs to happen and likewise i think on 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 a question of like what do you do about china there's been a tremendous shift over the last decade 
on, on acknowledging that, you know, th there's a lot that we like about free trade, but we can't just blindly say free, more free trade is good no matter what, yeah. even if your trading partner is a, you know, communist authoritarian <laughs> regime with a, with a, a state-led economy. Um, now, are there some people who will still say, oh, free trade is good no matter what? Yes. But but certainly I think the the conversation has shifted. And and so I kind of highlighted that point one that I think, you know, good arguments and, and really focusing attention on the circumstances of today and saying, what are you going to do about that? I think moves the needle over time. And, and that's certainly a, a big part of what American Compass is trying to work on. And, and then secondly, from the from the self-interested perspective, I think it, it comes down to political coalitions. I mean, I think you will always have people who are most benefiting from the, the current system and will therefore want to see it preserved. Now, it's an interesting problem that that I would argue most of those people are now in the Democratic Party. And <laughs> but really, but then, oh, absolutely. I mean, I think the 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 left of center coalition um, is is becoming sort of overwhelmingly populated by an an urban sort of so-called coastal elite of, of okay, that, those with higher education yeah, and correct. high incomes no, and, and a right. set of concerns that is is very very attuned to to those interests. Now, obviously, there are plenty of of, of folks on on the right of center who are are likewise sort of counting on the the right of center representation of big business, but. Um, in, in you know, speaking of the chamber, you, you there's been a, a a fascinating meltdown might be too strong, but but conflict within the the chamber just over the last month or two over its decision to to start supporting Democrats. So anyway, we we we, we the, yeah. I, I raise the realignment point because one way in which people are highly self interested is in wanting to achieve majority support in a democracy. Yeah, and so. You know, one consequence of of kind of the the neoliberal consensus that we've had for a long time is that you had two parties that were essentially taking the same position. Oh uh, yeah, on a lot of these questions, a hundred percent, a hundred percent, and they would fight about you know what is exactly the best policy to get growth and how much redistribution are we going to do, but basically the same. And uh, if nothing, you know, one way to understand Trump is to say whether or not you think there was any agenda there. He was the first person on either side who showed up and and talked completely differently <laughs> and and showed that there were an awful lot of people who said, like, yes, actually, that that I appeals to me an awful lot more. Yeah. N narcissistic sociopaths are unusual in the way that they speak. <laughs> well, it's an interesting I mean, this is kind of more of a Shakespearean question, but. You know, it's an interesting question whether you need someone of Trump's personality to be as iconoclastic and rejecting of orthodoxy and, quote, things everyone knows, as he was in, in saying, I, I don't have to talk about any of those things. I'm going to talk about these things. But regardless, I, I think that something that might have you might have been able to find glimmers of pre-Trump, but certainly his success accelerated, is rethinking some of these things and saying, wait a minute, maybe the actual kind of governing majority here uh, would be one that thought and talked about things very differently and happily, by the way, in the process would govern the country better. Yeah. And to the extent that you can get people thinking about that and seeing that as in their interest, then I, I think you'll see a shift that way as well. But but I think it has to happen both on, on both fronts. You have to yeah. have the persuasion and the actual intellectual foundation, and then you have to have a prospect of, of political success attached to it. Yeah.
Well, I mean, I, I agree with you on the on the front of persuasion. I do. I, I'm always of two minds about it. I, I think you're being naive if you don't consider the naked reality that a lot of the narratives that people advance have no connection to truth. They are simply effective ways of promoting the narrow interests of whoever it is that you're, you know, on side with. And certainly economics is mostly just a narrative justifying who gets what and why. I realize that's an affront to most economists, but that, that is the reality of how most people experience economics and how it impacts people's daily lives. But I will tell you that, you know, when I got involved in political economy writ large, even left-leaning Democratic senators believed that if you raised wages, it killed jobs. Even the economists that I was working on thought we had lost our minds when we started talking about raising uh, the minimum wage because they were absolutely convinced by the neoclassical equilibrium models, which in fact don't describe anything except a spreadsheet in somebody's computer and have no sort of real bearing on how market economies actually work. I think you're giving it a lot of credit to say there's even a spreadsheet somewhere. And usually there are sort of two lines drawn on a graph with no labels on the axes Correct. and a Correct. arrow pointed one direction or another. So we ask this of a lot of our guests, why do you do this work? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a, a difficult question. I guess I, I do it for two reasons. One is because I find it so interesting and, and there is nothing I enjoy more than thinking about this stuff and ultimately, in a sense, thinking about arguments. I mean, these happen to be economic arguments, but I think ex exactly as, as you just described, the, this problem of people just sort of believing things that there's no argument behind, yeah. that as sort of a social problem fascinates me. What what is the set of of building blocks that leads to that conclusion, and which is the one to push out to to knock it over, and and just as importantly, what is what is the alternative thing we we can be building with it? That is what I want to be doing, and fortunately for me, it lines up very nicely then with something that I think is 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 really important and valuable. I mean, I suppose one could could go be a a, a corporate transaction lawyer and do a lot of the same thinking. <laughs> Um, but you know, in, in, in my mind, uh, th this is a, a vitally important issue. And if, if some of the things I'm good at can, can help make progress on it, then, then that is a, a, a wonderful alignment. And ultimately, you know, we, we got to this a little, well, I guess we didn't really get to this in the self-interest component. The last piece of, of making the case on self-interest, I think is to say, look, Maintaining the status quo may be in your interest in the short term, yeah, but not. In the uh, long but term. it is not in in your self interest in the long term. And and I am am someone who genuinely believes we we cannot take for granted for a day the the extraordinary benefits of of to the extent we still have it a a healthy cohesive uh, democratic republic with with a market economy uh, and one that at least has in the past shown the capacity and 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 to some extent today still generates incredible prosperity for, for an incredible range of people. I think it is in my interests and, and my children's interests and, and my children's children's interests more than anything to, uh, to, to be finding a way to, to preserve and, and strengthen that. So 
obviously it's convenient that I can also make a living doing it. Uh, but, but that's why it's what I've chosen. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, but best of luck in, in reclaiming the Republican party from the libertarian nutcases who currently control the narrative there. Thank you. And, and we are, we are aiming to reclaim and, and welcome over a, a whole bunch of folks yeah, uh, great. satisfied with the, the other side's nutcases as well. Great. Well, Oren, thank you so much for spending the time with us. It has been a fascinating conversation. Oh, this was terrific. Thanks so much for having me. You know me, I'm really skeptical about the opposition. I, my, I love the guy. My starting <laughs> position is that the other side is going to be uh, ignorant or disingenuous. Um, uh, clearly, that's not the case with uh, Oren. He, uh, he knows his stuff and he seems he to be incredibly well-intentioned. I don't know what the prospects are in this pathological Republican Party uh, yeah. for uh, abandoning trickle-down and neoliberalism and uh, having a thoughtful conversation within the right on how to uh, readdress economics from a conservative perspective. I, I genuinely wish him the best of luck. And it is very complicated. And he is, he is distinguishing between libertarianism, right. which is a, a strain of thought on the right, and conservatism, which is another strain of thought. And, you know, I think he's absolutely right that certainly in economic policy, libertarianism has um, dominated because it makes rich people richer and that's what the donors love. Right. And that is what has become of the Republican Party. Uh, oddly, libertarianism does not dominate on the social side <laughs> right. where, where uh, the right wants to tell you how to live and where to live and what you can do, and so on and so forth. And libertarianism, to be clear, is different from conservatism. They they come out of different yeah. moral frameworks. I think what's happened to the Republican Party is that, you know, there's this libertarian economics is so appealing because it's so simple. You can yeah. reduce everything to more freedom, more markets. The freer you are, the better we all are. And 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 that's a very simple narrative to understand and to explain and to repeat. But as you said, clearly um, on the on the right, uh, they they have not extended that to you know uh, for like reproductive rights. Right. And I just have to bring this up because I have to take issue with both you and Oren on our the conversation, your conversation about. Uh, uh, college, uh, about education. And that is, I think that both of you, unfortunately, fell into the human capital trap, thinking yeah. of a college education purely in terms of how it enhances human capital. And I just have to give a call out, as I sometimes do, to Amartya Sen and uh, his capabilities approach that correct that there's much more to a liberal arts education than simply increasing your productive capacity. Correct. Uh, if correct. what we care about is human flourishing, then a good education is useful in and of itself, regardless of uh, what it does in terms of your income. And that's true, Goldie. But it's also true that you could spend two years after high school learning how to be a plumber in a world where being a plumber earned you one hundred and twenty-five or one hundred and fifty thousand dollars right. a year, and devote yourself when you're not doing plumbing to French literature too. Right. 
So I don't want to come off as an education elitist here. Uh, I just wanted, you know, to lend my support for a liberal arts education, an affordable liberal arts education. All right. Well, with that, with that, uh, uh, that was awesome. Uh, it was really cool to get to talk to Oren, and uh, uh, yeah, we'll see you next time. On the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, we talk with Michelle Marr about the six myths of uh, market capitalism and what we can do to make things better. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunk Works and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.